Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 3rd, 2015, and this is episode 1511 of the Survival Podcast. This is a good one today. It's a Tuesday, but on this Tuesday, we actually are doing a listener feedback show. That's correct, a listener feedback show, because we skipped a show and moved a show and did a listener call show yesterday, and I want to make sure we don't skip these variety shows, because for many of you guys, these are your favorite shows. So i got a lot of variety today. I got Planet a Week from Bob Wells for you. I got a, a blog response that I, I, I did today to somebody asked me a question I think you guys need to hear. Uh, I'm going to talk about the measles scare, uh, the latest uh, serving of uh, Soba de Mierda de Toro from the media to you. Uh, Nick Ferguson is going to join us to discuss plant propagation. I got a lot of other cool stuff. Before I get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today. Sawtooth Tactical, all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. You'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical, nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Wilderness. That's why they call it Sawtooth. Up there in Idaho, veteran-run, veteran-operated. If you can think of it, they've got it if it's tactical. SOE Tactical Gear, Magpul Magazines, and everything else you can think of, including the awesome manly titanium spork. I own one, you should too, just because it's cool. Seriously, check them out today, sawtac.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. When I need ammo and I want lots of it and I want it fast and I don't want to get off my butt and go out to the store and try to find it, I just go to BulkAmmo.com. I order it. The next thing I know, somebody's banging on my door with a big bunch of ammo for me at a great price. That's what Bulk Ammo does. All the common calibers available in bulk from BulkAmmo.com. Remember, Sawtooth Tactical and BulkAmmo.com both do discounts for members of the Members Support Brigade, which you should join if you're not a member. You should join my MSB. Why? Because if you buy stuff from self-sufficiency and self-reliance, from guns to gardens and everything in between, your membership will pay for itself. Because if you just want to try it out, it's 5 bucks a month. If you want to do it monthly, it's $50 a year. comes out to a whopping 18.3 cents per episode if you pay annually. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. You have an even better reason to join. Great big giant discount on the on the already great deal. Just email me before you join. Put service discount TSPC in the subject line. Tell me about your service. I will get back to you with how to sign up at a discount. Please do that before, not after you join. Remember, first responders as well. It is not just if you're active or retired. Any time at all, any service at all, I recognize with a service discount. Just one or two sentences. Don't give me your CV and all that stuff. I don't need all that. Anyway, with that... Let us look at the year that was the episode. It is 1511. I have the last lost treasure of Macula and the Ship of Gold. I have the launching of the Great Michael. And I have Here Comes the Holy League. I'm going to read the launching of the Great Michael because, once again, I can't choose, so I'm picking the one in the middle. Uh, the launching of the Great Michael. King James IV of Scotland ordered a massive ship to be built to rival the world's navies. And he got the great Michael, named after the archangel Michael of the Bible. Its keel was laid down in 1507 at New Haven. It launches this year. It is twice the size of the English ship, the Mary Rose. It could hold the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Marina inside it. It is a mass in its massive carrack. It is a fort at sea. It is not large enough to be called a ship of the line. That term will not be used for another hundred years yet. 
such massive ships will hold the line, so to speak. They will be replaced by battleships and eventually fall out of favor when aircraft carriers will prove more useful. My take by Alex Shrugged. Ultimately, the Great Michael will be a waste of timber. It is quite romantic to think of such a massive ship sailing the seas, but it is never handled well, and it will be costly to maintain. It was soon leased to France and sold to them in 1514. There is more to ship design than keel and fuel sails. They are realizing that. They can't build the new ships in the same old way. The English ship, the Mary Rose, will sink due to poor design and old gun ports located so low that they let the sea in as they come about. Uh, yeah, that, to my take by Jack Spierko is we need to understand this as entrepreneurs, as preppers, as survivalists, as people, that not everything actually scales up without making any kind of engineering changes to them. Uh, we can look at a lot of the times when people attack sustainable agriculture and say, well, how do you do that on 80,000 acres? Well, one operation doesn't do it on 80,000 acres. That's the whole point. My take by Jack Spierko. It's a nice, short, simple one for you today. Um, so we can get into today's main show. I want to start out with the Bob Wells plant of the week. So every week, Bob Wells, a great supporter of the MSB who offers you guys a discount on all things plants, uh, gives us a plant of the week so we can learn about what we can grow in our own backyard. And today, it is the wonderful pomegranate. Why is it wonderful? Well, that's what it's called. It's adaptable from zone 7 to 10, so this is a southern planting. Large purple red fruit with delicious tangy flavor. It's the best variety for the south. It has a beautiful red orange bloom. Very long lived, self fruiting, and does well in a variety of soils. This is a popular variety not only because of great fruit, but for its attractive look as well. You can find this plant more at bobblesnursery.com. Bobbles Nursery specializes in anything edible fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees as well. It's hard to find specialty trees. I have lots of wonderful pomegranates on my property, and I have some also called wonderful. Uh, for those of you that live in the north, there are some Russian and Japanese varieties that can go into zone six-ish. Uh, but this is really a, a, you start to moving toward the subtropics regions when you go to something like pomegranates. Uh, they do guild well with figs. And, uh, pomegranates, of course, are one of the superfruits that have incredible antioxidant properties. Uh, they're very prolific. Where I grew up in Florida, they were planted all over my apartment complex. And no one seemed to know what they were. They just sat there and fell on the ground and people went, oh, that's interesting. And one day, a teacher who was enlightened beyond the uh, the State Board of Education and wanted to teach us additional things that might be useful, like what food is, brought a pomegranate in from the market and cut it open and let us all try a couple bits of pomegranate. And that was like first or second grade. And I went, that's good, and I know where I can get more of those. And that began my adventure uh, at an apartment complex I lived at as a young man in Jacksonville, Florida, of finding Tons of edibles that were growing in that complex, uh, different uh, 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 plums, uh, pomegranates, and quite a few other things that before that moment uh, I didn't notice. So a little bit of a jack take on this, teach kids what food is. Teach kids what food is. If that teacher hadn't broken from the lesson plan from the state of Florida and shown us what food was, I don't know, my whole love of natural systems might not be here today. It could all go back to that. I think my grandfather had a lot to do with it as well. But the fruits and the trees and the stuff, that's my earliest memory. A teacher that decided, hey, what the book says isn't necessarily everything these kids need to learn. With that, let's get into uh, some feedback. So I wanted to share something with you guys. This was totally unplanned. 
But I was on the blog this morning taking care of answering comments, which I try to do every day. I can't answer every comment, but I try to do most of them. And um, somebody asked a question from yesterday's show where I said that, you know, I wasn't going to turn Chris Kyle into my hero, that numbers alone don't make a hero for me. I don't really have anything hugely negative to say, though I do think he was untruthful about some things in his book, and that other military individuals have been held accountable for that, and we're supposed to give him a pass, and maybe we're not being quite logical with that. But otherwise, you know, the guy did his job, he did his duty, but I'm not going to go out and celebrate Chris Kyle Day, because our new governor here in Texas uh, decided to make it a holiday. Um, and that I would, I would find my own heroes. I didn't need the media to tell me who they were. And uh, Josh came on and said, well, Jack, who are your heroes? And, you know, I sat down, and I'm just going to read what I wrote to you. Again, this was totally unplanned, and it's why it's genuine. In reply to Josh, mostly the various members of this audience building businesses, chasing and accomplishing their dreams, getting shit done for themselves and their families, I have come to the realization that most of our heroes of note are created, and often only so they can be destroyed later. When I see Jen Mendez building something like Permi Kids, I find that heroic because it is by my choice, not because the TV told me so. Patrick at MT Knives is a hero to me, taking a risk with so many children to care for and building something real with steel here in America, doing it right, doing it ethically and unapologetically. There are some, there are more. Some I know the names of, some are just stories. The callers who say in three years we paid off all our debt, uh, bought a place of our dreams and are now, now homeschooling our kids there. Those are heroes to me. If any of them fail, they are no less heroes either. There is no talking head in a suit who helped create their mythology to pull them back down and ruin everything. Since there is nothing fake there, there's nothing to expose. These people are flawed, just like we all are. We have no illusions about who and what they are, but they do shit. They get shit done, and they do it for the right reasons, and that is enough. Jeff Lawton is a hero of mine, one of my greatest teachers, but not the Jeff you guys see in video, the man who has taken time to know me and help me personally, one-on-one. -on -one. It is a very, it is very nice that he is the same guy in both places, but it is the one I know as a man that is my hero and teacher. The day he pointed to me and said to his daughter, look, there's Uncle Jack, was one hell of a great day. Dave Duffy is a hero for starting Backwoods Home Magazine. From nothing as a desktop publisher about 30 years ago when there was no internet. But again, the Dave I met in person shook hands with that guy. That's the guy I mean who's my hero. Not the idea I had of him from his name on an article. The Dave I invited to share a stage with me who politely declined being a bit too shy for that type of thing. He is my hero because that guy who is too shy to, to sit and talk to people at an expo on a panel had to overcome that reality and still have the spine and determination to build something that has employed dozens and inspired tens of thousands. Brian Black is a hero to me. Not the former Navy guy that is known for great articles and cool-ass designs on his website. No, the younger contemporary who five years ago sent me a simple email saying, I'm doing something a lot like you, but it's a lot different too. We don't live far away. Could we meet for a drink and talk a bit? That guy that took my advice, took and sought my advice and counsel where it made sense, and did what he saw best otherwise, and simply ignored me on those issues. The guy I told years ago, keep doing what you're doing, and I can tell you, your site will be bigger than my own. When I told him that, I saw that he doubted it, but also some part of him believed it. Now ITS is a bigger site than TSP. The Brian that got his wife out of corporate prison one year after I did, continues to kick ass and take names, yeah, that's a hero to me. Jake Robinson, who is a bit too concerned about large-scale politics, is a hero of mine, too, though he'd be shocked to hear it, 
because he's real and genuine, and while he is too worried about Obama, his real activism is local where it matters. This is a guy that reads textbooks and gets them the hell out of schools when they are spreading false bullshit and does things like that. A guy that stepped up to serve on the CAC board, worked worked as a wolfer at Permaethos Farm and just does all he can to help people. Yeah, that's a hero in my book. Steve Harris, who can wear me out at times, but he's dedicated beyond words to helping people and preventing them from being ripped off. A guy that will spend four hours researching one question to get it dead bang on when he could answer it in five minutes off the top of his head and still better, do better than 90% who would try. A guy that also helped build CAC, serves on local volunteer law enforcement, and feels the greatest thing you can do for the world is teach and spread knowledge. Yeah, that's heroic. The young man on the air last week, who's been raising yaks and pigs on his own since before he could get a driver's license, and understands anarchism philosophy better than most who claim to be an anarchist at 17. That's a hero. John Pugliano, who asked me how to start a podcast, and I responded with, shut up, make no excuses, and just do it. And instead of getting pissy, he just did it. Did it well and started changing lives. He's a hero. Cedar on Zello, that answers so many questions for people. Even though she's never even heard an episode of TSP, yeah, she's a hero. The list could go on. I've done many a disservice by leaving so many off the list, but I can't name them all. Who are my heroes? You guys. That's who. You guys get stuff done. You don't make excuses, and you know what matters in your life. My neighbor that's a good man, that wants some chickens so he can, quote, countryfy his daughters a bit more before they grow up too much, he's a hero. Ron Fidley that said screw it and started gardening in L.A., he's my hero. The urban farming guys are my heroes for taking one of the worst neighborhoods in the nation and doing this with it. And then there's a link to one of their videos of what they've done there. You see, I don't need the TV, the radio, and talking heads or history books to tell me who my heroes are. I like sports, but stats don't make a person my hero. Somewhere along the way, I got lucky enough to have the courage to do what I love and be myself. In the beginning, I thought it was about me. Along the way, I learned it was about others. I learned the sheer wonderful reality by finally being real and living in the real world. The media and the government want us to believe that heroes are few and far between, that they are to be worshipped and admired and praised, that anyone speaking ill of them is wrong and should be shamed for doing so. Of course, until they themselves bring them down, then they are to be scorned. But yes, there are only a few, a few special people who can do what others, and of course you, cannot. When you live in the real world, you see this bullshit soup for what it is. Bullshit. You realize, some, you realize something so amazing. Heroes are not rare. They are common. They are everywhere. One need only look at the work and impact of others to see it in them. The day you do that, nothing sold to you by the media and the power elite will have any shine to it ever again. I call that liberty. I wanted to share that with you guys. Because that was off the cuff this morning when answering a blog post. That's how I really feel. And without that question, I don't know if I would have actually realized that that's how I've been able to change my view of all this crap that we're told about all the time. All this, this bullshit soup, as I call it, that keeps being fed to us by the media. That's what it really is. That as soon as you pull yourself out of the false reality that's, that's marketed to you, and you actually look at the people around you, you realize that the people that get things done, that care, that live real genuine lives, they're the real heroes. They're the real heroes. And the more of them you can find, 
the better your life will be and the more liberty-oriented you'll become. Because every time you see one individual person who's just a regular person doing what they do and doing it because they believe it's right for what they really are, that's one more chink in the armor of control that's, that's exhibited over you. It's pretty awesome. And I thank all of you for being part of it with me. Uh, next up, on the topic of uh, Sopa de Mierda de Toro, and for those of you who do not speak Spanish, that means bullshit soup. It's going to become a... I, I actually see someday this being on a t-shirt. Um, it's going to become something that, that I use frequently, I think, because it is the truth. You understand that the media is nothing but a great big amalgamation of whatever whatever agenda is being put forth at a time. You can go to a website called Google Trends and stick in things like Scandal or Ebola or Kim Kardashian or whatever the hell you want, and you'll see these, these cyclical spikes in the news. When everybody in the world is talking about the same thing, and right now you'd see a great big spike around measles. And of course, the war right now is against any parent that would dare question authority and not vaccinate their child against measles, because not only they might kill their children, they might kill yours too, and measles kills millions of people, and on and on and on. So I put out a thing today on Facebook that's an episode of the Brady Bunch from the 1970s. When the Brady kids get the measles, the big the big episode thing is not, oh, they're sick, they're going to die. All the kids are upstairs playing in their, their pajamas and, and playing board games. And it's, you know, how do we decide which doctor we use now that we're a merged family? Oh, by the way, when doctors still made house calls. I'm just saying. Um, nobody was going to die. Nobody was freaked out. Nobody was nothing. So I put this out, and one person on Facebook said, well, when you're using pop culture to make your point, it's not very scientific and what have you. So I went and I found for this person an article from a website that I think puts out good information and maybe gets a little bit too hysterical at times as well, called Vax Truth. Clearly, if your website's called Vax Truth, you have an agenda. But this is, what, this is how it was responded to by that person Well, they're, they're even nuttier than natural news. Well, first of all, you guys know how I feel about natural news. The guy's a scam artist. Um, but see, what you're looking at there is an ad hominem attack. This is an ad hominem fallacy. I guess since it's not directly against me, but my source, it would be an ad hominem by proxy uh, fallacy. So in other words, the, the information must be wrong due to who's providing the information. Without any look at the information. Now, the interesting thing is this person is really, really into what the CDC has to say and what the government has to say. And the information on the Vax Truth article is all their numbers and it's just formatted for perspective. It's also not in response to the current bullshit soup around the measles because the article was originally published January 17th. 2012, you know, right after we didn't have the world end on 2012, uh, even though that was six months off by the Mayan calendar, and nobody told you that except the History Channel. Anyway, I'm just saying. So this is called Putting Measles in Perspective uh, by Megan. And Megan said, I don't know who Megan is, and I don't really care because the numbers check out. Um, no, this is actually by guest writer Don Babcock Papel, writer for Everything Birth, EverythingBirth.com. Before the MMR vaccine, measles were at epidemic proportions. Before the vaccine, the U.S. had three to four million cases of measles. That's insane. Thank goodness for vaccines. The end. 
Oh, now you didn't think I'd let vaccines get off that easy, did you? Prior to vaccine, three to four million cases of measles occurred in the United States every year. True. Also true, however, is that of those three to four million cases, only about 450 people died each year from it in the years before the vaccine. That still seems like a lot. Instead of running out to make sure your vaccinations are up to date, how about a shot of perspective instead? In the screenshot below, I have figured out the percentage of people who died from measles of all the measles cases back then. It is 0.015%. Suddenly, measles seem a little less scary, doesn't it? The CDC claims that around one or two out of a thousand people who get the measles will die from the measles. Their math doesn't add up, though. I guess they use the term about lightly. Also consider, in 1963, the population was 189,241,798. That means that prior to the vaccine, the percentage of the entire U.S. population that died from the measles was 0.00237%. Remember this figure because it will be important in about two paragraphs. Now, if you read the little excerpt above, you might be scared because even with vaccine, the global death count for children from measles is 197,000 in the stats above. That's a scare tactic, and it makes me mad. First of all, it wasn't 197,000 children. It was 197,000 people, and some of them were children. Then the excerpt goes on to talk about present-day figures. There are over six billion people on the planet. That is shown as 6 billion numerically. Correct me if you disagree, but one over 150,000 people die each day is 540 people dying from the measles each day. Really that outrageous. They're counting on us not comprehending the vast population of our global society, 240,000 240, children and low-income countries alone die each year of neonatal infections. 1.26 million people die each year from diabetes. And yet they're still pushing the high fructose corn syrup in school lunches. With vaccines, the U.S. went from a 0.000237% death rate among the general population from measles in 1963 to 0.00000% measles death rate. It's a different story around the world, though, as the World Health Organization points out, to scare the crap out of you. Currently, around 197,000 people die each year from the measles, out of 6 billion. Want to know what percentage that equals? The calculator shows 3.28E-5. Pencils on scratch paper, moving the decimal point to the left five places because of the E, that is 0.000328. Which brings the percentage of people who die globally today to 0.00328%. Remember what I told you in the figure above. So comparing the two figures, 0.00237 is less than 0.00328. As a country, Americans did better in 1963 at not dying from measles than the general population of the world is doing right now. But in fairness to vaccines, when compared to our own progress as a country, we no longer have that 0.0002% of our population dying of measles, right? 
But I digress. Let's compare the measles death rates in 1963 to other death rates in 1963. In 1963, there were 450 deaths from measles. Meanwhile, about 12,000 people died from stomach ulcers and the likes. Just over 43,000 people died from car accidents in 1963. Over 700,000 people died from heart disease. In 1963, you were more likely to be one of the 9,200 people murdered that year than to die of measles. If you were born in 1963, you were more likely to die from congenital disease than measles. In 1963, it was about 46 times more likely for a child to die from a congenital malformation than for someone to die from measles. Frankly, in 1963, you were about 46 times more likely to kill yourself than to die from measles. And it goes on with a little bit more about measles were starting to go away and whatever, and you can look up whatever you want. But here's the point, okay? After all that, I am not 100% anti-vaccine. But I do believe we should actually look at real numbers before we start freaking out, because the media has laid up today's soup du jour, which is always a big steaming bowl of sopa de mierda de toro, okay? And, and all of this crap going on, let's sue mothers who don't vaccinate their children. Let's take their kids away. All this Gestapo crap is the latest pile of crap. And people are consuming it, and they're polarizing the two sides of the debate. Where do I actually stand? I think that if you want to try to make a scientific case that vaccines are 100% ineffective, I think you're, you just can't do it. I think there is absolute conclusive evidence that specifically with some diseases, vaccinations have made real and beneficial results possible. I also think that the hype around a lot of these diseases is way overhyped just like the episode of the Brady Bunch from the 1970s can show you. I'm just saying. My real concern with the vaccinations that we're doing with our children today is the sheer number of them and the sheer frequency of them and how many are done at one time. When you vaccinate someone, you're basically shocking their immune system into a response. And I just simply believe that the vaccination schedules that we ran in the 1980s were more than sufficient compared to the ones we're running today, which are three to four times higher in frequency and number. Three to four times the 1980s schedule. Now, we didn't have people dropping over dying everywhere in the 1980s now, did we? Of course not. Why? Because what we were doing was more than sufficient. But I would like to put some things in perspective with numbers for you for uh, the purpose of making decisions for yourself in these matters. About eight years ago, my wife was suffering from a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. This is known as the suicide disease, and before the advent of some modern surgeries, people took their lives. That's how serious this is, because the pain becomes intractable and unbearable. And um, for years, we managed it with different medications, and eventually got to the point where we knew we were going to have to have surgery. And she was in um, pain that I can't describe for a, a couple days leading up to this surgery. Um, being in a hospital and on a morphine drip, giving her as much morphine as they could without moving her to ICU. So just to give you an idea of what they're dealing with with this, this problem. They finally went through with the surgery, and she had great recovery. She's had no remission, and at this point, she's actually less likely to have a remission than to have had this very rare condition in the first place. It's a compression of the trigeminal nerve, which is the nerve that comes out of your brainstem and runs along your jaw. So imagine somebody electrocuting you from the inside, sometimes for two seconds, sometimes for two minutes, sometimes for two hours. 
And you just never know when it's going to show up. That's, that's this disease. When we had the surgery, well, I should say when she had the surgery, I didn't have it. I went through the experience with her, but I obviously, it's just like saying, we're pregnant. I hate couples that do that. Anyway, so when she had the surgery, we sat down with the doctor and discussed it as best we could, considering the condition she was in. And he said, you know, like all surgeries, there's a risk of death. Well, what is it? We'd like to know. 1%. At that point, you're just as likely to get killed in a car on the way to the hospital. And you're dealing with this intractable pain you can't live with. You take that risk. Because it's so slight. Okay? But you wouldn't go through that surgery and take that 1% risk of death, not to mention the pain, the recovery, everything else, but just the 1% risk of death if you didn't have the problem. So what's the odds of a severe reaction to a vaccine? And is it higher than 0.00002%? The answer is yes, it's higher. It says so on the vaccine warning label. So you are more likely to have a reaction from the vaccine than to die from the disease that it prevents, or at least says it prevents. And no one wants us to pick apart information this way because then that means we're critically thinking and we're not consuming our daily steaming bowl of sopa de mierda de toro, are we? And the government can't have this conversation with this because there might be all-out rebellion then and maybe nobody would get their vaccine. And what's the real fear? That they won't be able to use vaccine mind control against us? No. That they actually believe this shit works probably because it does and we're too stupid to know the truth and make our own decisions. That's the truth. So... How would I advise a person today with a child to deal with the vaccine issue? First, I'd say in the end, the decision is yours. And if you don't agree with me, you have to make the best decision you can for yourself and your family, regardless of what it is. But if it were me, if my son was that age again, I would talk to my doctor and I'd say I'd like to space these things out a little bit further. I'd like to discuss the ones that are absolutely preventing life-threatening illnesses and the ones that are preventing superficial illnesses. And I'd like to not overshock his immune system all in one go. But I'm not opposed to vaccinations, but I don't know that we need every vaccination at all at one time, the way that it's done now. I really don't. And I think I'd have to think about it a lot deeper. I don't even know if I'd be okay with that if it were my child. I might be a little bit more conservative than that. Oh, is it conservative to not want to vaccinate your child? Maybe. Um, or a little bit more in the league of let's space things out or let's, let's, let's forego certain things, right? I mean, if there's more likelihood that my child is going to have a severe reaction to a vaccine than they are that if they get the disease, they'll die from it, if they even get it, then at that point, I have to really question the need for it. When you say, well, what about someone else? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry to all of you that want to make that argument, but here's the freaking truth. It is not up to me to risk the safety of my child because of the perceived danger to yours, all right? And that's the argument being made. Well, there's somebody else's kid somewhere. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm more worried about my son than yours, and you are more worried about your son than mine, and that's just fine. And in the end, they're not the state's children. They're our children. And we need to be the ones making these decisions. And the fact that parents are threatened by the state 
over their decisions in regards to vaccines is proof that this nation does no, lo no longer knows the meaning of the word liberty. And remember always, when you are threatened by the state, you are threatened with what? The threat of violence at the point of a gun. And the fact that a gun will be put in the face of a family and their children seized because they've chosen not to have an unnecessary medical procedure because of the perceived potential possible maybe danger to somebody else that they don't even know is bullshit. But the big bullshit, the steaming bowl of sopa de merda de toro, is around the hysteria and hype in the first place. Why do we seem to now fear the measles as much as Ebola? With somebody, a crazy redneck, who you could use the ad hominem fallacy to attack, he's not a scientist, he's not a doctor, he doesn't know, gave you a very similar analysis of a few months ago. And when all the hysteria things were saying, the cases of Ebola will double in the United States every seven days and some stupid shit like that, and I went, no, it won't. Well, where is it? And where are these people now? Where are these people that scared the piss out of you about Ebola now? I'll tell you where they are. They're scaring the piss out of you about measles, right? And they're telling you deflategate matters. Please, today, when you are offered the bowl of sopa de mierda de toro, when you're offered your steaming hot mug of bullshit soup, opt for a steak instead. And when somebody tells you you're surrendering, you're giving up, you're not paying attention, smirk and laugh and watch them as they wipe the bullshit from their face. And on that note, let's go into something totally different because we're supposed to have a uh, variety in a show like today. I'd like to bring on to the air right now my good friend, my partner at permaethos.com, And um, just all-around great guy. In fact, I would say one of the nicest guys in the world, Nick Ferguson. Hey, Nick, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks, Jack. Nice to be here. We've been uh, watching the progress of your uh, plant propagation course. We've had a lot of folks enrolled in it and starting to take the course and going through the information. Uh, everything's been going really well. But you and I have talked, and we decided we really wanted to over-deliver with this course So we've put together a, a plan where we're going to do some uh, some bonus material for people, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but what I wanted to kind of do is get you on just to uh, to talk a little bit about the course itself and what people uh, who are considering taking the plant propagation course might learn from it. So can you just kind of walk us through the basics of, of what the course teaches a student? Sure. Um, yeah. What I wanted to do with this course was was to create something that was basic enough that Anyone interested in in growing plants cheap or free, no matter the level of their experience, could step right into this and take off with it and be successful. So I tried to make this very basic, but also get very you know deep into depth into the the easier to master techniques. And we go through starting things from seed, dealing with disease issues that most people um, will start, you know, when you're a beginner, these are the, the common diseases and, and what to do um, when you encounter those. Um, like I said, starting things from seed, uh, we cover uh, a couple methods of grafting. We cover um, starting cuttings from softwood cuttings, how to do that, how to set up an intermittent mist system, how to grow them in that kind of a system 
how to start things from hardwood cuttings. We basically cover the gamut of all the the commonly used propagation propagation methods, and uh, I, th- I think we uh, we do a pretty good job at, at covering all those and and really teaching you the the basics of of how to get started. I agree. I'm I'm really excited about Dorothy's actually starting to take your course now, and and pretty excited about it. And I, I look at this from two different viewpoints. I look at it from a person that wants to actually start up and become a nurseryman and and do this as a business. And for mm-hmm. many of us, it's for self propagation. Like how how much can I propagate for myself? Because if you've opened a plant catalog lately, uh, mm-hmm. stuff's expensive. And when I started realizing. How easy it was if you knew what to do to do this stuff and, and the, the cost of setup not really being very high to set up pretty advanced systems, by the way. I realized it's like kind of like printing money. So right. you put, I, I had to ask you to put together kind of what, what, you know, what a person could produce in from a sales standpoint, but you flipped it kind of back around and look at, took another look at it. You put together a little piece for us to look at here and maybe you can walk folks through it and I'll upload the document today so people can look at it for themselves. But you said, let's look at it a different way. Let's say if I wanted to plant an acre full on food forestry acre, which, you know, that's not that big a project. You and I were just out on a project that was, well, it started out 500 acres and somehow became 1400 in a day. Uh, And that overwhelms you. But to plant one acre, which many of us want to do, what, what what would that cost, and how do the numbers break down? If you wanted to go full on trees, support species, bushes, vines, herbaceous layer, plant started from seed, and 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 how does that work out to what a person basically would be paying themselves an hour to plant their own property versus spending the money to buy it in a pot? Right. So you know if if you just have the money to throw at it, and you just want to go out and buy established trees that are already grafted. Um, bare root trees, not even potted trees, you're going to spend around $25 a tree. Now, that's that's actually a little low for most trees. Most of them that you're going to find are going to be $26, $27, but I tried to round everything, all my numbers down a little bit to make sure I, I didn't go overboard at all. Um, the support species, you can get those bare root wholesale price at, you know, a couple dollars to three dollars a piece, depending on what you're getting. Um, the bushes, you know, if you're buying potted blueberries and stuff, you know, those are twenty dollars a piece. Goji is how, how much? Twenty how much bucks. That I'm very upset about how yeah. much I've bought for that price. Yeah, twenty bucks. That's actually a good price for a goji bush in a pot. I've seen them for thirty, thirty-five dollars a piece. Same with the vines. You know, grape vines. Even the the garbage stuff that you buy in big box stores, it's going to be at least twenty bucks a piece. And your herbaceous layer, you know, if you want to buy um, echinacea plants, you're spending seven to nine dollars for one echinacea plant. For one, that's ridiculous. So I added all that up, uh, put the count in there for how many trees you could fit on that acre. You know, if you're managing this intensively, the support species, the bushes, the vines, the herbaceous layer. And then I tossed in some money for, you know, cover cropping, overseeding. Um, and it came out to a little over $20,000 to plant one acre. Now that's if you're $20,000. And, and I rounded the, way, the, by the way, the guy from permaculture orchard said, if you did it exactly the way he did, uh, you'd spend about 40, 44, I think. 
Right. So maybe your numbers are low. Now he was including irrigation and, and, and plastic and mm -hmm. all, but 20 grand extra buys a lot of that stuff. Right. So I think now, your number's totally solid and you're doing about the same type of an arrangement. So I think you lowballed right. it, to be fair. Yes. That's, that's what I tried to do. I tried to lowball it and that doesn't include any shipping, any tax or anything else. That's just the listed price of the plant and most of those listed prices are a little low. So, um, so then I went and looked at how much time would it take me for each one of those trees if I were grafting it. And I doubled that amount of time what it would take me. Sure. So if, if you're completely new to this and you're fumbling around with that graft and you spend five minutes on that tree to get it grafted and stuck in, in the ground and then um, pull it out of the ground when it's ready and stick it back in the ground where you're going to transplant it to. You know, the total amount of time on each of those five minutes. I could, I can graft a tree in 30 seconds and stick it in the ground is about five seconds and pulling it out of the ground and putting it back in the ground where it gets transplanted. Another 10 seconds. So that's, that's under a minute per tree for me. So I went way overboard on the time. Five minutes per tree for grafted trees comes out to a, a little over 20 hours. 21 and a quarter hours for 255 or, trees to the acre right okay and then um two minutes for each support species five minutes for each bushes and we've got let's see the counts we got 255 trees 675 support species 450 bushes and 25 vines and 450 herbaceous layer and the time on those is five minutes per tree two minutes per per support species, five minutes per bush, three minutes per vine, and two minutes per herbaceous layer species. And I added all those hours up, and it came out to a little over 97 hours in work. 97 hours of labor. Two and a half work weeks. Right. Yeah. Two and a half full-time work weeks. Not even two and a half. Yeah. And then... I divided that by the dollar amount of what it would cost you, and it comes out to you're basically making yourself $212 an hour. So, you know, yeah, not everybody is going to want to plant an acre food forest, and I'm sure not, not very many people in your audience would want, would have 20 grand to just toss at an acre food forest. But, if you could have an acre food forest for two weeks worth of work and maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars worth of infrastructure and plants to start out with, you know, how, I wonder how many people would be interested in that. Yeah, it's it's a great way to look at it. And I mean, I look at it this way: if a person says, "Well, I got a quarter acre," okay, mm -hmm. a quarter acre—that's five grand. And by the time you're right. done with it, now you've got a side business. Mm -hmm. And I've been kind of blown away with us. We've played around with Craigslist selling our eggs and stuff like that. It's like we have to take an ad down. We, we decided we we're going to sell some of our laying chickens because we're moving to the ducks. So we put up an ad to sell some laying chickens. And it was like, okay, shut it off. We got one person who wants to buy 10 of them. The two other people that want to buy some. I don't want to sell that many that fast. There, mm -hmm. There's a market out there for all of this stuff. Oh, yeah. We've got it up and running. It, it is a little money machine, and I'm not going to tell anybody what to do with their finances and all, but to me, if you buy 10 trees for me for five bucks a tree for cash over the fence, 
that's between me, you, and the post of the fence, right? The fence post. Right. Right. That's not necessarily, you know, let's say revenue in, in the way that we might think of that, but people can make that mine up, you know, mine up for their own. But I was saying there's a significant amount of, of potential here. Um, you talked about intermittent mist. Do you want to explain what that actually is for folks? Sure. It's, uh, it's basically going to look like a raised bed. And instead of garden soil or compost in the raised bed, you just have sand or something like a, a lighter potting soil. So you get regular potting soil and just add a little bit of perlite to it. Um, most people just use sharp sand. And that's not, not like play sand or building sand. It's going to be a little coarser. And what that does is that just keeps the, the little cutting moist at the root zone. And above that are a couple mist heads. And it's like a sprinkler head, except it's just a finer mist. And you hook that up to a controller, and you set your program. And then when you're ready to start propagating, you take your cuttings, you strip most of the leaves off, stick them in some rooting hormone, and then stick them in the sand. And the mist heads come on, and they keep it from drying out until it can set roots. And then you taper off the mist, and now you have new plants. And, you know, one one established blueberry bush, you could get a thousand cuttings off of in a year. That's, you know, twenty dollars per blueberry bush. Hell, call it five bucks even. I mean, it's right. still it's 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 it is like a little money machine. Right. Assuming you can move them. And we we have some ideas on how you can do that. that we'll talk about a bit. But um, can you explain why or let's look at it this way. Like a lot of people are familiar with the concept of take a cutting, dip it in rooting hormone, and stick it in dirt. And some mm -hmm. things like goji that works pretty good for. Though I do think you'd get better results with intermittent mist. Can you talk mm -hmm. about though for some species that are a little bit tougher? Like what is the what is the percentage of you know success versus the percentage of success without intermittent mist? Oh man. Um, so if you're using an intermittent mist system, you're gonna get you know, upwards of 90% success rate with most things. Mm. Um, some of them you have to play around a little bit with. They don't all like this, the same amount of mist. Um, some of them, you know, you have to taper them off a little bit sooner. So what you can do is, you know, just have a couple little trays that, that you set in that bed that are filled with something that, that will root really quick. And then as soon as they're rooted, you just take that tray out and you let the other cuttings you know grow to their the maturity that they need and i mean you can be taking those cuttings and instead of sticking them in in the ground in your garden where you might get half of them to root a quarter of them to root or less or less i mean some of them you, even if you use the best rooting hormone in the world and you put them in a perfect spot but they get sun on them they're just they're just gonna die so putting them in that intermittent mist system, you know, some things you'll get a hundred percent take on, which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And some things are almost impossible to get to root right without Correct. it. Correct. Correct. I mean, you know, I've tried to do autumn olive, and I haven't gotten it to root for a dam, but it'll mm -hmm. root just fine. Uh, intermittent mist system. Now that's you know uh, something that's really easy to do from seed, but its mm -hmm. cousin, the gumi. Which is twenty four, twenty five dollars a piece and more. Mm -hmm. Doesn't like to propagate from seed very well at all, right? Uh, especially the name varieties and stuff like that. And so, 
that's also, I've also tried to do that from cuttings and I've had, you know, zero luck, but with intermittent mist, no problem. So yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff like that. And that's just my little pets. So there's tons of stuff out there that just doesn't really root well for you any other way. Right. And, you know, if you, if you look at it, intermittent mist is the industry standard mm. for propagating these things from period. Yeah. Most, most things are not propagated from seed nowadays. They're, they take cuttings off of them. They're asexually propagated. And that's, that's what they use. They've got massive greenhouses full of these just trays and trays and trays underneath mist heads. And they're all set on timers. And that's, that's the one thing that I like about it so much is that you stick them in the, in the mist bed and you just walk away from it. You check on it once a week just to make sure nothing went wrong. You know, maybe you walk past it once a day and just look over there. Yep, everything's damp. Great. And, and you come back in six months and pull, pull 250, you know, 500 plants out and they're each worth 250 to $5 a piece wholesale. Hmm. Yeah, let's run some numbers on it. So like, you can fit in one four by eight bed set up with intermittent mist. And if you put in mm -hmm. one, you're probably going to do two or three because one, most of the work is in setting up the misting system, building a box, throwing some dirt in it, put some hardware cloth on the bottom of it. So easy. Even I can do it and, you know, an hour <laughs> while drinking a beer with, with, you know, a drill and a saw. Uh, right. so, but one bed with one in spacing, which is what we'll space our cuttings at. 4,600 plants. Now, during the interview, you said, you know, you're expecting like 90% for a lot of things. So that's right. 4,140 cuttings per bed. Right. If we went stupid cheap and sold them at 250 a plant, $10,000 worth of plants per bed. Right. Like, there's nothing that you can grow for a crop that will get you $10,000 out of a four by eight foot bed <laughs> that's legal without a special permit in Colorado. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and they're using, yep. and when they propagate, you know what they're doing? Cutting, cloning, intermittent mist. Even those folks, yeah. that's what they're doing. The same uh, thing. Happy stuff in, in Colorado, California, and Oregon, or whatever now. Right. <laughs> so we can actually do that legally in all 50 states with plants that, you know, produce food. So I think that's cool. So let's kind of wrap up here and let folks know we're, we are committed to like really helping students take this information and move forward. So you're the plant guy. You've got more experience in this than probably I'll die with. Um, I'm the business guy. So what we've decided to do for every student in your course, uh, in February, we're going to do uh, one weekend, like a, a boot business nursery boot camp day, two, two, two hour sessions, one on a Saturday, one on a Sunday, where we're going to be in touch with students. People can ask questions. We're going to answer them. We're going to video that and record the audio and all the students will get the video and the audio so they can just listen to it. Cause let's face it. It's not going to be like, you know, like what you did for the course where there's a lot of visual components. Right. But you're here anyway, so we'll video it. And we're going to answer all their questions. So it's an additional four hours of content uh, on business, marketing, and propagation. And this should give everybody that, you know, started the course or uh, it will start the course in the next week plenty of time to kind of get through it, even if they only go, they kind of go through it quick the first time. So that they know what to ask. Cause we're going to do it when, Nick? When do we say we do that? The 21st and 22nd, I think. Okay. So we're not going to interrupt your Valentine's Day guys and get ourselves in trouble at the same time. So that's mm -hmm. uh, about a week and a half out. So if you guys want to take the course, uh, and get in on that, that'd be great. Now, people that take the course after that date, they're going to have access to this 
but they're not going to be in it live. We don't know if maybe we'll do some more in the future, but you're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. Getting us together like this isn't the easiest thing in the world, though it does give us an excuse to sample ciders and beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got some cool stuff for you when you come down on the cider thing. But uh, awesome. I'd, like to, I'd like to thank you for the work you did. Can you tell people, like, so you put together a course like this, just kind of as we wrap up here, how long did this take you to do? This wasn't something you just knocked out in a weekend. No, this this took months and months of work. I mean, I was I was spending for the past the month before it was released, I was getting about four hours of sleep a night and spending all day on this, editing, splicing stuff together, double checking all of my numbers and facts just to make sure that I didn't slip up and made sure everyone got the best information I could give them. And to pare down the information, because some people looked right. at total hours of video and went, well, it's not that many hours. Well, that's because we made sure that every minute was functional, useful, and necessary. Right, right. I tried to make it as as concise and to the point as possible, because my time is valuable, and I know anyone buying this course, their time is valuable, and they don't want to sit around uh, watching somebody goof off with plants for 12 hours when they could spend four or five and get actionable information and get going. That's, exactly. That's what this is designed, folks, just so you understand this course. This is designed for two things, producing your own plants or producing plants and making money with them. And right. this is designed for production mentality, but yet doing it the permaculture way. We're not using, you know, other than some rooting hormone, everything is pretty natural, basic, what have you. And the rooting right. hormone, uh, unless you drink it or bathe in it, you, you're not going to have a problem anyway. Right. And And the main insecticidal... A uh, component that I use is insecticidal soap, which is just soapy water. Sure. And and I literally use it to wash my hands. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wash your hands and get rid of your mite infestation at the same time. Well, there again, man, thanks for all the work you did on this. And and the production quality is really amazing. Um, I know you went through some, some 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 training, and we got you some high end equipment to do this. So. Did a great job with it, folks. If you want to take the course, you can you can take it. It's over at permaethos.com. I will link in today's show notes. And everybody that's a student, probably a couple days before the video conference, uh, we will uh, we will get information out to you on how to join that. Now, just so you guys know, when at the live conference, it may not be like streaming video. It probably won't be. That'll just give us technical headaches. Uh, we'll video it on our end. It'll be like a phone call, and that way everybody can participate. Nobody needs any special equipment. Nothing like that. Uh, but we'll just make the audio and the video available to all students in their classroom area after it's over. And again, it may not be the only one we do, but it's the only one we have planned right now. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but we do hope it shows that we're going the extra mile to over-deliver on this product. And again, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. All right, man. Now get out and grow some plants, and all right. we'll uh, we'll take it from there. It's always great having Nick on the air. Uh, he's just an awesome dude, and I, I really am grateful that he took some time to be with us today. With that, we need to move on. So um, here's an interesting question. It comes from Jamie. Uh, it says, Jack, in John Pugliano's most recent Wealth Sitting podcast episode, he made it pretty clear that he thinks it's time to get out of the stock market for a while. He obviously can't give investing advice in a podcast due to regulations, but it was obviously what he was saying. Do you agree with him? I moved my 401k balance to a cash fund. My plan still has one, hoping it was the right move. Sure feels like it was. Value your opinion. Thanks, Jack. Jamie, let's start out with how you approach this if you feel this way when you have a 401k plan. You're either going to have a cash fund or a U.S. government bond fund. Now, yes, I've said before and I've proven conclusively that 
tremendous amounts of 401k plans have had the cash investment options stripped to force conservative investments within 401ks to U.S. government bonds. That's, that's the truth. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. If you're in a 401k and that's your option, either cash or bonds, and you don't get cash, you use bonds. The day U.S. government bonds are worth nothing is the same day that cash is worth nothing anyway. So it's, it's held hostage. 401ks, the reason I don't like them is they're extremely limited, and you're held hostage to the five to ten funds that your employer offers. And this is why I recommend if you have an employer that offers a 401k, Um, but doesn't do an employer match, that you max out everything you can do without them before you consider putting one dime in there for tax-deferred status. You go to Roth IRAs first, etc., and any other thing that you can conjure up through your, for yourself based on any other thing you can do. And this is a conversation to have with a financial advisor. Some of you guys with small secondary businesses can run certain things through that and what have you and create other opportunities for yourself. There is no reason whatsoever infinity for you to put money into a 401k through your employer until you need to shelter money that you could not shelter otherwise unless they're giving you a match okay and unless the match is significant if they're giving you 10 cents on the dollar it's a 10% return over the over 10 years of your investment it's 1% a year That's a way to look at it, okay? If they're offering a dollar-for-dollar dollar match, and a few companies still do, it's an instant 100% return. It's 10% a year for 10 years. It's 5% a year for 20 years, okay? I can get behind that. But if they do it up to 5%, don't you put six in there until unless you've maxed out all your other ways you can save money. You just can't save any money more, any more money tax-deferred, and you still want to. So let's just start. That's the, the initial advice. Now, Now you got money in there. Whether you should or shouldn't, doesn't matter. It's in there. You see a freight train coming in the stock market. You move out of the way. You, I hope I made the right move. Fear of potential loss of potential gain is not a reason to sit still. Okay, what do you think is going to happen to the stock market in the next two months? You think it's going to go up 100%? You know, what is the best you can expect in the next two months out of the market? Probably lingering, uh, festering, sort of kind of sideways to down. If it did good over the next 60 days, you might see a 2% or 3% return. Okay? Um, so if you think it's a good time to not be in risk, move. Move. You got plenty of time to figure it out. Decide if you want to go back into whatever type of index matching funds are in your 401k. Okay? Now, what me personally, okay, I don't own. At present time, with the exception of, of one real estate investment fund that pays a guaranteed percent of return as a basically a loan type bond fund, own any mutual funds at all. I do own some ETFs. It's a totally different scenario, totally different play. My inv my pure investments in the stock market that are pure investments, right? Buy and hold right now are all individual stocks that pay dividends of companies that are profitable, companies that have a mitigated risk in a downturn. They're very conservative dividend-yielding investments. So I am paying attention to the individual companies, not the stock market as a whole. The market goes down. If my stocks go down, I don't care. market goes up, but my stocks don't go up. I, I don't gain it, but I don't care. 
right? I care, am I able to eke out a reasonable dividend income from these individual stocks with a mitigated risk? And I know John Pugliano's not a fan of it, but with, yes, checked by stop losses. Now, the, the thing about a stop loss, and this is why John will tell you they're not a good idea. Now, what, to be fair, John will tell you they're not a good idea if they're not properly used. Let's say I put in a stop loss to sell at market, and the market starts catering in and cra caving in. And everybody's dumping all of their, their you know, fund XYZ. And between the time my sell order's triggered and the sell order goes through during a panic, I lose 10% or more, 20%, 30%. I mean, it could trigger on a stop loss and sell for half the value it was when the stop loss was triggered. It could fall right through it. Well, that's true. This is why stop losses are not set it and forget it options. Stop losses are, listen, this stock has made me X. If it comes back down to Y, I've already predetermined that at that point I would trigger a sell and sell, and I have a stop loss sitting on that stock. I also sometimes have a buy order setting to be triggered if a stock comes down to a certain point as well. But these, you don't just do it and walk away from it, and this is not the kind of thing I can teach you on a, on a, a podcast. But I manage my own money, and this is why, because this is the way that I think. And when I look at an individual company, I'm far less concerned about what the market does and far more concerned about what that company does. And this is why I personally feel individual stocks have lower risks than funds. If something happens to the large cap world, where large cap stocks start, start taking a beating, and I'm invested in the premium of the premium in that world, they come down slower, I have more time to react. I have more time to decide, do I need to react? Now, there is the time. Get your boat out of the water, put it in dry dock. Are we getting there? Maybe. I don't know. I knew once in the, the eight years I've been doing, seven, eight years I've been doing this show now, I've known one time, 2008, and I said, get out of the way. There's no, not, nothing to see here. There's nothing good here. Move. <sighs> I don't know. I didn't listen to the episode you're talking about with John. If John feels that way, I got to take a deeper look. Um, but right now, no, I don't feel that way. I feel Russia's getting hammered, absolutely getting hammered. But I'm also feeling that we're we're not there yet, but we're getting to a point where I might start loving Russian stocks or loving Russian investments. Um, why don't I love them yet? I don't think people hate them enough yet. I when I take the risk portion of my investment portfolio. I want to wait till everybody hates an investment, till everybody despises it, till everybody says it's a fool's, it's catching a falling knife. And then I want to sanity check it and make sure that's not correct. So when, when, when people felt that way about General Motors, and I looked at it and said, is this catching a falling knife? I went, I don't know, so I'm not going to. And then when I saw the government was going to step in, I knew it would be catching a falling knife. I knew as soon as the deal was made with the devil that this, the, the common investor would get screwed with reverse splits or whatever. So I stayed away. When Ford said, not us, no way, no how, no freaking chance, we can make it on our own. At a, at a little bit out of just pure support, I bought a few thousand shares in Ford. And also I did so because I thought it was a good investment. And I bought Ford stock under $2 a share. I believe it was under a buck fifty a share. I believe it was. 
You can check into that to see how that worked out. And I did that when everybody hated any investment in any auto company. And I looked at the one that had taken the biggest beating on behalf of others, but yet still had the ability to fix its own problems. And I found Ford. But it was a, that was risk capital. Let me explain that to you. That's a few grand, right, of my total investments for the whole world, a few thousand dollars. And the only regret I have is I didn't buy more. It would have been great. Um, if you would have invested $100,000 in Ford at that time, you wouldn't be asking for anybody's investment advice at this point. You really wouldn't. But you can't look back at it that way, right? That's when you start going to other fallacies, the what-if fallacy, you know? Um, you can never take that all-in approach. Because if you take the all-in approach and you're wrong, you can lose so much. So much. And at that point, you could have literally lost whatever it was. But, you know, a few thousand bucks on a stock like that can pay real dividends. That's trading. That's gambling. The long-term investments, I invest in companies that make stuff and companies that make money. And when you do that, a lot of the day-to-day -day trading stuff is less important to you. Um, again, this is why I don't like 401ks. This is why I don't like mutual funds. If you're a mutual fund XYZ, that fund manager's told, these are the types of companies you can buy. You cannot sell except to cover sell orders. So if I, you know, because they lie to you. They tell you that, like, okay, well, this fund manager went to this school. They don't really lie. They mis mis misdirect you. You know, and they go and they actually look at the companies. They go and they go in there and pretend to be employees, and they really know the companies, and they do this and they do that. They don't do shit. I don't do shit. Manage a mutual fund company, you might as well do it with a dart. Um, and and, a, and a, the old school newspapers that had all the ticker symbols in them and you can look up all your stocks and just start throwing darts. And, and, and if it's a mid-cap, okay, we'll take that one. That one's a large cap. Okay, we'll pass it over to Bill who's doing a large cap fund. Another mid-cap, okay, we got let's put that in there. Okay, and then once in a while you might get the dart picked when you go, oh, they're in deep shit. No, we're not putting those guys in our fund. Get, throw the dart again. You got me another one? Okay, we'll put that in that. Yeah, that's, that's good. Because <laughs> when they diversify to a certain number of companies to take a certain percentage of the sector, you're going to end up with many funds holding the same shit. Now, here's the problem. Let's say I'm managing Spirico's mid-cap fund. And I promised it to you, my investor, to do the best I can to protect your money in my mid-cap fund. And I look out like 2008 and I see a freight train coming and go mid-cap sector is going to get smashed in the face, man. The, the smart thing for me to do is take all my investors' money and move it to a cash equivalent for 60 days. Let this thing pass and then go back and buy all this stuff after it comes down. And I know this is going to happen. I, 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 everything tells me this is going to happen. Uh, but okay, so uh, let's say I, what I do is I protect them by doing it with half the money. Can't do it. I'll go to jail. I'll go to jail if I do that. I have to stay invested in what the fund says it invests in, which is mid-cap stocks, okay, or large-cap stocks, or growth in income. It's how the government says that is defined. I can't move your money to a safe location. All I can do is when you freak out and call me, I can just sell enough shares of everything we're holding to cover your sell order. And every time I sell, 
I'm driving the price not just of my own fund, but all the stocks in my fund down because it's institutional level trading. And when 20 or 30 brokers are doing this at the same time, and they're all holding different funds that hold the same stocks, it creates a cascade effect. That's what you saw 2008 to 2009. Panicked people jumping out when they should have been jumping out in advance. This is a big telegraphed punch. In most of your 401ks, that's the type of investment you get. So that's why I'm saying, unless you've maxed out your tax-deferred money, you feel a need for more tax-deferred money, and your employer is doing some kind of significant match, stay away from 401ks. Now, would I prefer that you invest in a 401k to you investing in nothing? Absolutely. If the only way you have enough self-discipline to save for your future is to fill out a form for your HR department and have them do it for you, I'd rather you do that than do nothing. Just be very conservative with your money if you do it that way. And understand how hard it is and how much harder it's getting to get that money back. And understand your government has a great big set of crosshairs on that money. They have plans for your retirement money, folks. They have plans. They're not going to seize it, but they definitely, over time, will begin to figure out different ways to force a portion of your money into safety to take care of you. They will. They will. They want that money. They don't think it's your money. They feel like it's their money that they helped you save. See, every time the government giveth, the government taketh. And what they're going to tell you is, well, we set up this program for you. We gave you these tax advantages. And we have to look out for your well-being and safety. They're not going to tell you that you're greedy and you don't deserve it. They're going to tell you that they need to make sure they protect it for you because that's their job. So be careful with your 401ks. If you feel it is time to get out, move the stocks. And I hate saying it, but if you're in a 401k, and you don't want to liquidate and pay penalties, etc., which you probably don't. And in some companies, unless you quit your job, you can't get the money out, period. Um, and loaning it to yourself is usually not a good idea, usually. Um, then go to the bond fund. The bond fund is as good as cash from a safety perspective. It's a, It's kind of an integrity thing that would keep you from doing it. Right? I don't want to give the government my money in the form of a loan. But in the end, you don't want to lose your money either. Your hard-earned dollars need to be protected. That's my take on that one. I want to do a little bit of a follow-up. Last week I had a question on colored diamonds, and I basically said that uh, I didn't think that gems of any kind were a good investment uh, in the, the way that, let's say, silver and gold were, and I gave a whole list of reasons and explanations as to how they were nowhere near as liquid as silver and gold, transferable as silver and gold, and how I thought that even if the value went up, you would still lose some money. Uh, apparently I was right, but I was not even nearly uh, pessimistic enough. Let me read this to you. This is from Jim On our blog for episode 1507, Jim says, uh, Late comment on colored diamonds. About 20 years ago, when I had more money than brains, I purchased, I knew nothing about gems and was led to believe it was a good preservation of wealth, a blue diamond, 0.43 carat, deep blue color, flawless clarity, excellent cut, GIA certified, Cost to me was the middle five figures. About six months ago, I decided selling would be a good idea. 
So I did some online work, saw what the prices for comparable ones were going for, high five, low six figures, and thought I had made a nice gain. Then I tried to sell. I was advised by multiple dealers that the only place to handle a transaction of this nature in North America was through the diamond sellers in New York. De Beers, by the way. Anyway, they weren't going to offer the prices seen online. I would be selling them at a 37% discount if I did it on a commission basis. No sale, no money to me. A 48% discount if I sold outright. I was looking at a small gain of 9%. Not so good over 20 years. As Jack said, colored diamonds are not liquid. With the retail markup, the price you pay is not even close to the price you get if you sell. Think buying a car as soon as you put your money down on the new car. The money is lost. So, everything I said was true, and I wasn't near hard enough on the classification of the investment. So don't buy colored diamonds from reputable companies on the phone that tell you what a great deal they are, because even when they're telling you they're blue color, flawless, clarity, excellent cut, and GIA certified, and they're telling you the truth, it doesn't matter, you're still going to get shafted in the ass. And in this case, the return was less than half a percent per year. In other words, It was about the same as putting your money into a savings account where 100% of it would have been available the next day should you have needed it. That's not an investment. That's losing money. A 9% return in 20 years is a negative return. You haven't even beaten inflation. Well, next up, another segment of the pretty infrequent but always admitted to Jack was wrong. Yeah, yeah, Jack was wrong last week when a caller asked about keeping pigs and chickens in a similar area and basically creating a pig moat around the chicken area so the pigs would ward off predators. Uh, I don't think the advice I gave overall was wrong, but I did say that I believed if you cohabitated the pigs and the chickens, the pigs would kill and eat the chickens. I have good reason to believe this. I'm not sure that it you know, will never happen, but I've had so many people tell me, Jack, my chickens and my pigs live together, and everybody's happy and copacetic, and the pigs don't eat the chickens. If a chicken dies, a pig will eat it, but they won't just eat the chicken because chicken's peeping around. So, once again, Jack was wrong. Apparently, you can safely cohabitate pickets, chickens and pigs. Um... I can't tell you the specifics as to how it works and how it doesn't work. I cannot believe that pigs never kill any chickens. I, I can't believe it. Uh, and I think that pigs might be more likely to kill baby chickens just the way a dog might be more likely to attack a baby chicken than an adult chicken because the way they move around and what have you, uh, kind of that nervous, you know, like more of an instinctive thing. But even Nick Ferguson says he's got a great big pig. Pig hangs out with his chickens. No chickens get eaten. And it makes sense because I lost a chicken recently to a predator, uh, and the predator, uh, let's just say, wasn't where the animal was uh, anymore for a reason, and um, the, the animal was still laying there with a big hole in it. And the other chickens were eating it, 
Well, they don't eat, they usually don't eat each other when they're alive. Occasionally chickens go kind of cannibal, especially on one with a wound or something like that. But once it was dead, the other chickens were happy to eat her. So, uh, that makes sense, I guess. So Jack was wrong. Uh, let's go on from there. Here's another example proving that the people in government don't think that individuals can be trusted without their supervision on all things, or at least that we're dumb enough to let them extort money from us for shit like, oh, I don't know, the privilege, yes, I said the privilege, of riding a bicycle. Here we go. Oregon is proposing a bill to require registration licenses for riders and their bicycles. This is a quote from Cedar on the forum. Oregon Senate is looking at a bill that would require bicyclists to get a license. State legislators are back in session on Monday. Senate Bill 177 states that Oregon residents ages 18 and older who own a bicycle and ride it on a highway or public street are required to register their bicycle. The registration fee is $10, and the money collected from the bill would go to the, quote, Bicycle Transportation Improvement Fund, end quote. In addition to registering your bike, you would also need to complete a test to obtain a bicycle license. To obtain a bicycle license, the person must successfully complete a test administered at a site where the driver's license knowledge tests are given. This is a quote from Endurance on the forum. Unfriggin' believable. While I don't completely oppose a pay-to-play aspect for folks riding on government-maintained bike paths and such, having to take a test is absolutely asinine. Are they going to deny the mentally challenged 25-year-old the right to ride his bike to work because he can't read enough to pass the test? And then there's the matter of the right of free movement. Are they going to license runners and walkers next? Christina sent that in. Uh, they might license runner and walkers next. Yeah, I, I would say if somebody wants to put a bike path in somewhere and says this path is accessible to those with a permit for it, I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay with even the government doing that. Why not? Because I've already paid for it. It's my money. You've, it, okay, let's say you said, we, the government of the, the city of uh, Idiotsville, are going to put in a bicycle path for the use of uh, our, our riders, and it's going to be wonderful and great and happy and hoopla and what have you. And, uh, but we are going to charge a fee, a toll for people to use it, an annual membership, whatever. Uh, would I ever be okay with that? Oh, well, is it 100% paid for with tolls? Do I choose to pay for it or not? If I use it, I pay for it. If I don't use it, I don't pay a dime for it. I would actually be okay with that. We'd be headed toward a libertarian model with a minarchist state where users of services pay for the services they actually value. That I would be okay with it. But, oh, we're going to take all the money we already stole from you, build a bike path with you, and then sell you access to it. That's the government MO of today. And, no, I'm not okay with that either. It's bull. It's complete bull. And why does a person have to take a test at 18 to prove they're competent to ride a bicycle, but a person at 16 doesn't have to take a test? Do, do you get stupider between 16 and 18? Maybe in our public education system in this country you do. I don't know. But this is just, like, if you think they'll ever stop extorting your money, restricting your movement, regulating everything that they can, and basically stealing whatever income they can from you, whatever money they can from you, whatever property they can from you, they never will. You're fooling yourself. We have to begin resisting at a different level, guys. We do. We have to be, begin creating our own systems that are independent from these idiots.
I mean, to tell someone you're going to have to pay a fee to ride a bicycle, you have to go, you have to go, I mean, think about this, okay, you got to think about this, all right, I have to take, I'm a 40, 44-year-old man, whatever I'll lie, I don't know how old I am anymore, right, 42, 44, whatever I am, that's been driving with a hardship license since I was 14 years old, I got my driver's like a 14 with a hardship license, because I had to work, and, uh, I don't know if that's even possible anymore, but it was back when I was a kid. And so I've been driving 20-odd years, let's just say. Let's say I got my license when I was 20. Who gives a shit? I'm still 20 years of driving a car. Now, if I want, if I live in this, this idiot city or this idiot state of Oregon and they pass the stupidity, what I'm supposed to do is take my bicycle, I guess, so I can pass the test to prove I know how to run a bicycle, put it into the, my, 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 the bed of my truck, Drive my truck to the DMV and let somebody that works for minimum wage evaluate my skill riding a bicycle when I'm already licensed to drive my 8,500-pound F-350 down the road around the guy on a bicycle. Welcome to tyranny. America, yeah. All right, some of you know what that's from. How far are we going to let these people go? And those of you that live in states doing shit like this, how long are you going to stay there? I mean, this is like a walking to freedom thing. You fight this stuff as much as you can, but when the people around you have lost their minds, the people actually become okay with this, you got to get the hell out of these places. you got to let these places destroy themselves. We're, 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 we're getting to a point, but the, the problem is we're getting to a point where even states like Texas... And Florida are doing some of this stupidity, too. We're getting to a point where, where are people going to be free? We got a cop recently pulling a gun on kids for a snowball fight. We got cops shutting kids down because they were running a business shoveling snow off sidewalks. What? Where... Where is the spine of the average American? Where is it? Is it gone? Seriously, why do we let these people do this shit? You know, we talk about how much tyranny is there and how much power they have. You know what? They have no power that we do not give them as a people. They have no power that we do not give them as a people. Most of this stuff is not federal. This is state. This is the state of Oregon. People of Oregon should be rolling heads over this. And to be fair to the people of Texas, there's been stuff not quite this dumb, but there's been some stuff tried in Texas, and basically the state Senate and the state House were put on notice, you're all fired if you don't fix this. And they fixed it. When Governor Perry signed one of his only executive orders requiring the Gardasil vaccine and circumvented the late legislature, The people of this state said, you know what, if we're going to have that, we're going to have that through due process. We're not having that put in by executive order. And and the, 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 the legislature turned it over like, and that almost never happens, but I mean like, bam, because they knew. They knew they were toast. I think voting at the federal level does very little anymore. But most of this stuff isn't even state level. Most of the suppression of this kind, 
bicycle laws and, and fees for this and regulations that and you can't put another window in your house. Yes, that's a real thing. I don't know how many home improvement shows I've watched where, well, the fire marshal says one more window on that wall could prevent a fire, present a fire hazard to your neighbor. Can't put another window on the wall. Well, we can do it, but we have to take one of the other windows away. Right? Or, oh, there's a regulation against sheds, but that shed already exists, but you can't take it down and rebuild it. It's grandfathered in, so you can leave it be a piece of shit, but you can't. This stuff doesn't come from Washington. It comes from cities and towns and counties. And we're being a bunch of damn cowards and let it happen all over the country. At the city level, and even the county level a lot of times, it takes 200 people, 200 people pissed off to change it. Or to prevent it from happening. And that doesn't even exist. You know, the reason I'm apathetic about voting is because I do believe that the, the, the people are voting for what they want. More free stuff, more perceived security. That people are consuming the bullshit soup at an alarming rate. And they're polarized into two camps. I don't want to be part of either one of them. I don't want to be part of the right or the left in this country. The general right and left vibe of this country. I have no desire to steal something from somebody else, to give it to somebody that didn't work. And I have no desire to come down on somebody for their choice of lifestyle or put somebody in prison because they smoked a plant, whether I think it's a good idea or not. There is nothing attractive to me at all anymore about either side of this dichotomy. I've seen it all for what it is. It is... The last act of a cowardice people who fears their own individual responsibility for their own lives. To polarize to one or the other for the sake of blaming somebody else. Right now in this country, the majority of Americans choose the political poll that they, they side with, right or left, based on who they dislike. For me, that's not good enough. And it shouldn't be for you either. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, progressive, socialist, fascist. I don't care what you are. If you think we should be charging people a fee and giving them a test to ride a bicycle, you've lost something that used to be what made us Americans. We've got to stop not these things, but this very mentality. And how do we do it? Same thing I'm always going to tell you. Individual actions. People don't know what freedom looks like anymore. So you have to show them. You know, I was probably going to go longer today, but Tuesday's a, a rough day for me now, too, for a variety of reasons that I don't need to bore you guys with. But uh, I, I want to finish up with uh, this email that came from JJ. And by the way, when I was a kid, JJ was my nickname for Jack Jr., so we share a common nickname, JJ. Uh, here's what he says. Just a thought about the fact that TSP is like a vaccine against bullshit. Once taken, bullshit doesn't infect us like it once did. We're resistant 
Thanks for my daily dose of immunity. I don't think the CDC would approve. You know, and I'd like to just kind of throw a little aside over from this to a story I was going to cover in depth today that I'm not. But basically, this big report went out from right-wing news or some stupid shit like that. Um, Sharia law now in force in Texas because there's Sharia courts in Texas and they're circumventing U.S. law and blah, blah. In a way, they are circumventing U.S. law in a way that I highly approve of. Uh, I'll put a link today for a response by Judge Andrew Napolitano, who we all know is a notoriously progressive liberal... W w no? Okay. Anyway, um, about what these things are. But the, the basics is this. It gets reported as Sharia law enforcing Texas of all places. My God. And what's actually happened is that Like many religious institutions uh, and many private arbitrators, the, the Muslim community in Texas has said in certain disputes, the U.S. court system is designed to rip us the hell off. It doesn't honor our view and our way of doing things. So in cases where no criminal action has occurred and it's just a dispute between parties and both parties agree to it, The parties can choose, instead of seeking the state solution, to seek the faith's solution, the faith of Islam, of course. And there's a panel of, uh, of judges who then act as arbitrators at the consent of both parties, whose agreement is considered binding because it's agreed to in advance. Is that Sharia law? Yeah. Is it Sharia law like the headlines lead you to believe? No, this is not a court that can hand down stoning a woman to death for adultery. It isn't. This is not a court that can hand down any ruling that would be in conflict with U.S. criminal code. This is an arbitrator that can't do anything that ABC arbitrators who sets up a private company that you and I contract with to handle our, 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 our difficulties couldn't do. Can the, their, 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 uh, can what they hand down be, be enforced by U.S. courts? Yes. Absolutely. Watch the video for, from Andrew DiPolitano to learn more about that. But only if they are congruent with U.S. law. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's say that our worst fears happen and uh, the, the court of these evil Muslims sentences a woman to 80 lashes with a whip. Right? Um, which probably would not fit with Sharia law, by the way, I'm just saying. Anyway, so then if that was done, that everybody involved would still find themselves in a United States prison, okay? You can't, so like, it's no different than if you and I have a disagreement over a contract, right? And, and, and we say, you know, I say you owe me 10 grand, and you say, no, I don't. And I say, I provided the services, you say, no, you didn't. And we choose ABC Arbitrations, Inc. for binding arbitration under our contract. We both sign off that whatever ABC, Inc. says is true. And ABC, Inc. says, not only do you owe Jack Spierko the $10,000, but you cost him five weeks of labor. You are now his slave for five weeks. Not only do you have to give him his ten grand, you have to go do whatever he says. You, he owns you for five weeks. And you say, I'm, I'm not doing that. And I say, well, we agreed to binding arbitration. And you go, this is bullshit. I'm not doing that. And I go to the U.S. court system and say, hey, look, we agreed to, non -bi or to, to binding arbitration. We went to binding arbitration. His ass owes me $5,000. 
plus he's my slave for five weeks, I'd be laughed out of court. I probably wouldn't even get my 10 grand. Now, if the arbitrator says, Mr. Spirico delivered the services as rendered per contract and you owe him 10 grand. And I, now you say, I'm not doing it. You can't make me. This was an arbitrator. It's actually really easy for me to get you at the U.S. court system to enforce the arbitration because it's consistent with U.S. law and we both agreed to it. See? And how do I feel about this? Even though it's Sharia, I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it Bumble. <laughs> I was almost going to say a word I don't say there. You guys probably know what it was. I don't care if you call it uh, beeswax negotiations. I don't care what you call it. If both parties willingly consent to an arbitrator and it stays out of the U.S. court system, especially in, 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 in matters of family law, I think we're better off. There is no one, there is no one who has done more damage to the American family than the U.S. family court system. No one. Um, I really think that if you want a, the truth and you want to understand this at a higher level, that you absolutely need to see a movie and it's worth paying for. The movie is called Divorce Corp, The Divorce Industry Exposed. You can get it at divorcecorp.com. It's one of these things that's not available free online. You can watch the trailer if you want. But it it was something that when I saw it, I knew it was bad. I didn't know how bad it was. And do I, would I trust the Sharia law court system in Texas to resolve my dispute as my arbitrator uh, with anybody for anything? No, I would not. I would not, period. But I don't have to. That's the difference. This is for people that want to use it. Okay? Do I think I might get a better shake there than in our own court system? I probably would. Can I say that I think a woman's going to get a fair shake there? My gut is probably not, but I don't know that. I'm making a snap judgment. I have nothing to base that on. I could be wrong. At least I'm open to that. But that's for people to make their own decisions with. I think that we should be resolving our conflicts outside of the, the, the state anytime we can. And right now, if you're a Catholic, you have that available to you for certain issues through the Catholic Church. Catholics can go and have a Catholic arbitration for many things. There's a Jewish system like this. And there's thousands of companies that provide arbitration services, both non-binding and binding. And I think it's a good thing, as long as it's something that both people consent to. See, but this is what, what, what J.J. was saying. This is about the bullshit vaccine. I can't bring every... I, I get so much of this stuff, guys, every day. Did sent to me, and there's so many things I think, I gotta talk about this, I gotta tell people about this, you know? And I, I only do a couple shows like this a week where I get in these individual subjects like this. And I don't attack them to just prove them wrong. I try to do it in a way that demonstrates how they're wrong, and how you pick it apart and get the truth. Okay? And then give you reference material, like you can listen to Judge Napolitano, You say, Jack, you're not a judge, you're not a lawyer, you're not a legal expert, you don't know. Well, Judge Napolitano was a lawyer and a judge. And he does know. And he's not, again, he's not exactly the guy that, uh, that is, you know, the, the typical liberal progressive with a positive message about Islam. 
Okay? In, in fact, I would say that his general stance is one that he should be more trusted when he comes down on this side of things than, than someone who, who typically you would expect to. You still have to make your own decisions, though. But that's what I want. These feedback shows are the ones where we really get into this stuff to be for you a bullshit vaccine. So you can decline the, the Sopa de Mierda de Toro and not drink that steaming pile of crap. But so that you'll also, because the problem is when you don't drink it, people start throwing it at you. Like, oh, he's, he's, he's leaving. You gotta come back. You gotta look at this one. You gotta look at that one. It's true. It's real. Oh my God. The hysteria. And I want you to just go, meh, I don't care. I don't care. Let's see. Does this affect me? No. Yes, it does. No, it, it, it really doesn't. It doesn't affect me at all. It, it doesn't affect my neighbor. And you who are all freaked out about it, it doesn't affect you. Everybody's going to die of measles. Well, since like .00002% of people died from the measles in the 1960s when nobody got vaccinated in this country, I don't think it's going to be any higher than that now. We can have all the debate we want about should we or should we not get vaccinations, but I'm not going to get all upset and scared and freaked out about this. Well, someone somewhere might die. Someone somewhere is going to die tomorrow of being hit by a car. Somebody somewhere will probably stab themselves in the face with a screwdriver and seriously injure or kill themselves in the next 24 hours. But I'm not going to ban screwdrivers, and I'm not going to get upset about it. Somebody somewhere will probably eat something that they're allergic to and didn't know it and have such a severe reaction that they're going to die from it. But I'm not going to ban all food. Somebody somewhere is allergic to a nut. But I'm not going to ban nuts from existence. We, we were looking at doing a food forest for the city of Helena and they didn't want us to put any nuts in the design because some kids are allergic to nuts. I'll tell you what's nuts. That tactic, that take... It's up to you to educate your kid not to eat a nut. I'm sorry. Well, but they don't know. Well, they don't know a lot of things. They don't eat dog shit either. But you teach them not to, and then they don't. I mean, how much are we going to buy into this stuff anymore, folks? See, and, and this is the reality. It's not difficult. Critical thinking, it's not TSP that's the vaccine against bullshit. Folks, it's critical thinking. If you just say to yourself, from now on, whenever I'm told anything is really important, my first question is going to be, how is it important to me? That alone is like a, a 60% vaccination right there. You just go, no, that one's not, so I don't care. And no matter anything that anybody says to you after that, they can't make you care anymore. So 60% of the bullshit is gone just from that. And then if the next question was, how do I know that this claim is true? That's not going to do anything in of itself at first, except it's going to require you to either prove or disprove the information with independent data. The very fact that you've questioned Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or any alternative news site, doesn't matter, as to whether it's valid or not, means that I can no longer take the information they've given me 
is being 100% of the story. That even if it's true, it could be angled and, and set up in a certain way to be misleading and deceiving. Therefore, now that I've determined that I actually care, right? So 60% of the do I care, it goes in the I don't give a shit bucket. So now I only got 40% of the stuff to research, okay? So then if I go, I, I care, and I don't trust this, how do I know this information is true? I begin to do the most basic research of a little bit of Googling. And I start asking myself the next question, does the story I'm being given match the facts behind the scene? The minute the answer is no, I got to ask myself the first question one more time. Do I give a shit about this? And all of a sudden, 60% becomes 80%. Because in that very exercise, you actually realize that of the 40% of the time that you say you care, even if what they're saying is true, you probably don't. Or it's misleading enough that you should have said you didn't care in the first place. So now you're down to 20% of the information that you're being given. Most of which is still bullshit, by the way. But at least now you're down to a level where you can actually spend your time getting the information about things that affect you, that you care about, that are at least plausible on the most cursory investigation. And then if you take something like the measles vaccine and go, let's just hold on a second. Let's, I want to ask my own questions. They've convinced me that vaccines work pretty well. I've been convinced of that. Whether you agree or not, let's just say you say in your, um, in your conclusion that you decided, yes, I believe vaccines are effective, as do I, by the way. Okay, fine, vaccines, vaccines are effective. And that the majority of people should get vaccines. Okay, fine. Let's say you believe that. Don't argue with me if you don't agree. It doesn't matter. I'm saying that the person that's going through this exercise has come to those two conclusions. I'm still going to show you how it's bullshit. All right? So then, but, but, but is that what's being debated? No, what's actually being said is this is a serious life-threatening injury and that somebody somewhere deciding not to, to vaccinate their child is likely to end up with my child or someone else's child being dead. Okay? What would prove that? Well, how many people die from measles? So I try to find that out, and the CDC says a couple hundred thousand people a year die of measles. Now, if I'm a critical thinker, I should think, though, where are these people? Who are these people? Why are they dying of something like this? Does everybody die of something like this? So you start to think, well, you know what? People die of diarrhea in Mexico. People die of the cold in Mexico. So that would lead you to ask the question, which is how I got the information that I shared with you today on this. Well, what percentage of people in this country died? How many people did it kill in this country before vaccinations? And as soon as you get that number, you go, this is bullshit. No matter what you think about vaccinations, okay? No matter what you think of the hysteria around this particular illness and this particular vaccine that you're being told is so important that we have to go persecute uh, parents... Right? Is bullshit. It's bullshit. That you are at risk, that your kids are at risk, that your grandma's at risk is bullshit. It's bull effing shit. Okay? Just to be blunt. And I don't need to dissect that news story for you for you to know that. If you wanted the information that I gave you and you followed the process that I just gave you, it would take you less than five minutes of your time. To put it to rest for yourself. This is bullshit. 
I don't mind doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. I think it's interesting to discuss and tear these things apart. I think it opens minds on a daily basis as people listen to the one show that resonates with them and they get that one, oh, that really is bullshit. And they say, wait a minute, if that's bullshit, what else is bullshit? Maybe they go listen to a little George Carlin for some humor and some truth. Maybe a little Bill Still while they're at it. And next thing you know, the comedian and the podcaster has led them to the truth. The majority of the information given to you is bullshit. It's designed to elicit a reaction from you, to polarize you into one of two primary groups where you're then easily controlled. And you're convinced that the person that chose the other line to eat the same bullshit is the enemy instead of the people forcing the bullshit down your throat in the first place. I would like to believe that TSP and critical thinking are your legitimate vaccination against bullshit. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.